Well, good morning, church. How are you? Man, it is good to see you here today. Glad that we get to worship together. Listen, uh, when was the last time y'all heard shout to the Lord? Like, it's been a minute, hasn't it? Uh, look, I mean, that's exciting. Kelly taught me that song uh, like 25 years ago. That's where I first heard it. Uh, and it's weird that I'm of an age now where songs that were brand new are now the old school throwbacks, right? I'm coming to grips with that. Uh, but it's one of those things that remind us of like, look, uh, there are old songs and new songs. There was a day when Amazing Grace was a new song. Let's think in. There, there was a, that, Jesus didn't write that. You know that, right? Well, he didn't. And so look, there was a day when that was a new song. And so we get to sing these old songs that people have been singing for generations. And then we all get, also get the joy of brand new songs that the Lord builds into us. We get more opportunity to sing new praises, puts a new song in our mouth. That's exciting. It really is. I'm glad that we get to celebrate old and new songs together. Hey, before we jump in for today, a uh, quick thing to remind you of this Wednesday night. We've had some great Wednesday nights. Thank you guys for being a part. But this uh, final one for the semester uh, is going to happen this Wednesday and it's prayer night. Uh, we did these, uh, we did a few of these uh, last year around this time. And this is an opportunity just for us to come and pray together as a church. We're not going to teach on prayer. We're going to pray. And so we're going to gather in this room and you'll have an opportunity to pray as an individual uh, in small groups, uh, but also all of us together. Uh, and we're going to pray for our church. We're going to pray for our area. We're going to pray for our country. And we're going to ask the Lord to bring this renewal, this revival that we're all asking for. Listen, if you want to see the world change, it's going to happen through prayer. Amen. Look, regardless of what happens on Tuesday, that's not going to fix the world. The world is going to be saved through the coming of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, look, we got to pray for that. And, and so look, we're going to come and pray. So let me just invite you one hour right here in this room uh, on Wednesday night. You do not have to pray out loud. If that makes you uncomfortable, you will not be forced to. Uh, but we would love for you to come and just for an hour, we're not going to do dinner, just 6.30 to 7.30. Want to be able to pray in this room. And, and look, whether you come or not, let me give you something very specific to pray about. And that's our D Now coming up this weekend. Uh, many of our students are going to be at D Now. Got various folks very excited about it. Uh, but look, this is a marked moment for our students where they're going to get to spend Friday Saturday, Sunday, in small groups and sessions, really delving into their relationship with the Lord. Uh, look, these are rare and special moments for them. So I hope that you'll be praying for them. Look, I know flu's running around. Pray that the Lord keeps them away from that so they don't get taken away from this environment. Pray for the leadership as they teach, as they lead. Uh, just pray that the Lord will move in power through this event. Uh, I love events like this, and I really would love to see the Lord do some incredible things in you guys. So we're going to be praying for you. In fact, let's just do that right now, if you would. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and say, Father, thank you. Thank you for just the joy that you give us in worship. Uh, to be able to join in with the angels who've been singing for millennia. And also just the joy of new songs that we get to continue to sing to you. You are worthy of our praise, and we're so thankful for who you are and what you have done. God, thank you for your blessing of just being here today and speaking to us. But Lord, we ask a special blessing on our students as they prepare for D-Now. Lord, I pray that you would bless them, give them ears to hear, eyes to see. Lord, that you would speak to them by your Holy Spirit. Lord, that this wouldn't simply be an event or a weekend, but it would be a moment, a marked moment where you move in their lives. And so, Father, we pray not just for their physical health, but, Lord, for, for spiritual renewal in every single one of the people who's going to be involved in D-Now this weekend. So, God, a blessing upon them. Help them. We're excited to see what you are going to do through this event. In your name we pray. And we all said, amen. Hey, grab your Bibles, if you will. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 is where we're going to be this morning. 
as we're continuing our sermon series on worldview. And look, if you've been with us these past two months, we have been really walking through the planks of a Christian worldview. How do we see the world? How do we see God? How do we see ourselves? We've been trying to answer kind of these basic questions of who am I? What's my purpose in life? Who is God? What is sin? What what should I be doing? All of these things we've really looked at. And that's important because now that we have some answers to these questions, that's going to help us to interact with the world around us. And look, we have not by any means uh, extrapolated all of the planks of a Christian worldview. We could continue going on for months and months. But I want to take at least a few weeks here at the end of the series before Advent uh, to pivot and really talk about how then do we live in the midst of a world that does not share that worldview. And I want to remind you of something I said the very first week we started this, uh, this series when we talked about the, our worldview is that the world has a view of its own. When we talk about the world, we're not talking about the planet. We're talking about the human system of values and ideas that has set itself against the Lord and his kingdom. We're not talking about any one person or group. We're talking about humanity, fallen humanity that has set itself with its values and ideas against the Lord and its kingdom. And look, the world has a very particular view and it is different from a Christian worldview. So how then do we live in such a world when those worldviews collide? When the world wants us to believe or act differently than what the Lord would have us to believe or act? How are we supposed to live in that vein? And so we're going to take a few weeks to look at that by looking at some more controversial topics. And today we're going to be looking at the topic of sex and sexuality. Because look, unless you've been living under a rock for the past 10 years, you know that we have been going through a sea change in our culture when it comes to American values regarding sex and sexuality. It really has been incredibly rapid. 2010 is a very different place from 2022. There has been a wide swing in people's uh, opinions. It's about the approval of homosexuality or gay marriage from 2010 to 2022. In 2015, we had the Obergefell decision that legalized gay marriage in America. Uh, Pride is now not simply a a topic to be talked about. It is an entire month where everything shuts down to celebrate all forms of homosexuality or the LGBTQ community. You see it on television, we see it in in, in all our shows, we see it, you go down to Disney, you see this all played out, we see this in our schools, and and the way that this is being presented in books and in curriculum all across the country, and this has brought a lot of angst for a lot of different people. And look, before we even talk about this, let's make sure we got some of our definitions uh, down, we understand what we're talking about here. When we talk about the LGBT community... The L and the G, that stands for lesbian and gay. These are people who uh, would consider themselves homosexual, who experience same-sex attraction. Instead of feeling a sexual attraction for people of the opposite sex, they feel sexual attraction for people of the same sex. And so that's lesbian and gay. B stands for bisexual. These are people who say, I don't consider myself either straight or gay, uh, but instead I am attracted to both genders. Right, And so either one is fine with me, that would be considered bisexual, then transgender is a little bit different. These are people who say, Adam, my my physical body does not conform to my inward feelings of my gender. And so I'm going to need to act differently, dress differently, or even modify my physiology to make my body accord with my inner feelings, and I'm going to to be a transgender a transgender person. And then there are other letters beyond that in different parts of that experience. And all of this is really summed up in a phrase that has been thrown at us for all of this 10 years. And it's this, is that Adam, this seems very simple. Love is love. 
This is a slogan. It's branded on billboards. It's branded on t-shirts, really on this entire movement. It's a hashtag to say, Adam, love is love. Love in all of its forms, regardless of permutations, regardless of the object. Love is just love. Why can't we get on board with that? And honestly, that's kind of hard to refute, isn't it? I mean, what monster doesn't want to get on board with love is love? You say, Adam, uh, God is love. And so if your God is love, why then would we not be on board with saying whatever form of love there is, surely we should be for that. And yet as believers in Jesus Christ and uh, believers in a sexual ethic that he describes in the Bible, we say, actually, we cannot get on board with that. And that leads to conflict with the world that you and I live in. But even before we get into a full analysis of some of this, we need to recognize that just like we've gone through two months of looking at the planks of our worldview and finding out that our belief in God has an underpinning. There's all these different ideas that really inform our belief. The same thing is true for the world. When somebody says a phrase like love is love, that seems very self-explanatory on its face, but it's not. There's actually ideas underneath that statement, ideas That kind of make that statement make sense to the world. I mean, think about it. When you say love is love, it does beg a question of like, what kind of love are we talking about here? Are we strictly talking about sexual love? Or are we talking about filial love? Are we talking about parental love? Are we just talking about love of different things? Are we simply talking about the feelings? Are we talking about commitment? I mean, what do you really mean when you say love is love? Because there are going to be places where they say, well, well, this, but not that. Or or you can go here, but not there. And you got to ask why. Why would you say this is okay with love is love, but this would not be okay with love is love? Well, that gets us down to the underpinnings of the world's worldview. There's three ideas, at least, that are underpinning the LGBTQ community, and they are these. Number one, authenticity is the only authority. Authenticity is the only authority. In today's culture, authenticity is prized above all things. I must be authentic to my true self. I must be authentic to how I feel. So whatever that feeling is, Adam, I cannot repress it. I cannot reject it. I cannot deny it. I must be true to myself. That's what I've learned my entire life. And so that authenticity has to be prized above all things. And so the authority of my life doesn't come from the outside. It comes from the inside. Only I can tell me what I am feeling. Only I can say what is truly authentic for me. And so I reject any form of external authority. No, no religion, no God, no parent, no tradition, no culture. No, there is no authority that is outside of me. Authority comes from inside. Authenticity is the only authority that I will respond to. You see, we as believers don't believe that. We say, no, that there is a God who is above us. I did not create myself. And so I am beholden to him. He is the one who actually decides what is right and wrong. And so we very much surrender to an authority that is outside of us, whether we like it or not, whether we feel that or not. The world has a different view on that. Here's the second thing. My sexuality is my identity. My sexuality is my identity. Adam, when it comes to talking about my sexuality, Adam, I, there's no place where I could, I could deny that or repress that or, or reject that because this is core to who I am. I cannot describe myself without describing my sexuality. It is that important to me. And so, Adam, for you to say that, that, that I cannot express that fully or completely or in whatever way I choose is not simply an attack upon my lifestyle. That is an attack upon my person. 
You are literally trying to cancel me as a person. You are attacking my very ability to exist if you attack anything in regards to my sexuality because my sexuality is my identity. It's that core to who I am. You see, we as believers, we wouldn't agree with that. We would say, look, your sexuality is very important to who you are. It is a vital part of who you are. We are all made as sexual beings. However, that is not the fundamental part of who I am. It's a part of who I am, but it is not the core of who I am. It is an aspect of who I am, but this does not define me in a fundamental way. Furthermore, when you get into all the different things, especially if gender becomes fluid, how would that actually be the case if that can continue to change? How could you have a firm foundation on that? It falls apart if you really push it too far. But the world would say, no, 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 my sexuality is my identity. And here's the third belief underpinning the worldview of the world. Only a sexually fulfilled life is a good life. Only a sexually fulfilled life is a good life. The only way you can have a full human existence is to have full sexual fulfillment. Adam, we were created as sexual beings, and so therefore I must have sexual fulfillment. And if you cannot have that, if you cannot experience that, if you are somehow prevented from experiencing that, then you are having a subhuman experience. You are not having the fullness of what a human life is supposed to be. And so, Adam, how could I possibly tell anybody, even if I don't agree with it, that that's not something that they should do? Because that would be denying them something that is fundamental to the human experience. And again, we would say sex is good. It is created by God. It is a gift from God to be enjoyed. However, it is not the sum so totality of our experience. It is not the full, the completeness of our life. If that were the case, then Jesus did not fulfill a human existence. Jesus did not live a sexually fulfilled life. How then can he say, I want my joy to be in you. And if that happened, your joy would be made full. He said, I come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. How can he possibly know what he's talking about when Jesus does not fulfill sexual desires? He did not live a sexually fulfilled life. Therefore, he cannot understand this and only this is the only experience that matters. You see, we don't always say these things out loud, but these are the underpinnings of an idea of love is love. And if we do not believe with these underpinning ideas, then I also cannot get on board with this idea as well. The Bible speaks differently about these issues. And so how are we going to navigate that? Now, for just a moment, let's take a breath and acknowledge the tension in the room. Can we do that for a moment? You can hear that with a laughter. Anytime you hear the laughter, I was like, <laughs> I mean, it was there, right? You needed that laugh, didn't you? Because look, this is tense. This is a hard topic. I mean, anytime we talk about a topic like this, I mean, we just like, I can see all you're You're like, you're all clenched up. I can see you, right? I mean, look, because this is, this is hard. This is an emotionally charged topic. Because look, this is not just academic. This is not just out in the world. We know that we're going to have to deal with this issue. But this isn't about an issue. This is about people. And specifically, it's about people that we care about. There are so many people in this room, whether you've told people or not, who say, Adam, I personally uh, would would wrestle with same-sex attraction. But even if you don't, you probably know somebody who does. It's a parent. It's a child. It's a relative. It's a friend, it's a coworker, it's a neighbor, 
And these are not random faces. These are not random issues. These are people that you deeply care about. And so Adam, I feel torn because I truly care about this person. And so, Adam, I hear what you're saying and what the Bible has said about this issue, but I also know this person, and I want them to be happy, and I want them to experience life. And so I hear what the world says, and I hear what the Bible says, and I just don't, I don't know what to do with that. And we feel a tension in there. Furthermore, we got people just tense about the topic, period. They're sitting here saying, Adam, are we going to be one of those churches that just kind of lambast people in the LGBT community? Are we one of those kind of places? Because I don't know if I want to be a part of that. On the other side, people say, Adam, are we going to be that church that jettisons what we believe biblically in order to conform to the world? Is that what we're going to do with our theology? Because I don't know if I want to be a, a part of a church like that. There's tension when we have a topic like this. And so look, this morning, I want to invite you to join me to do some hard work. Because anytime you have to deal with a controversial topic like this, it's going to require some hard work. It's not easy. We're going to have to think through this. And look, let me just go ahead and admit to you, I'm going to fail this morning. Because there's no way I can adequately cover this entire topic in one sermon. It's impossible. It cannot be done. This is the beginning of a conversation that we hopefully we'll have over years as we continue to explore this, not just in this room, but in community groups and in personal conversations and readings and otherwise that we really begin to work through these issues. But we have to learn to work on this because when it comes to controversial topics like this, there's two temptations that we're all going to face. The first temptation is this. There's going to be a temptation to have conviction without compassion. There's going to be a temptation to have conviction without compassion. You say, Adam, I know what the Bible believes. Man, I know exactly what it says, and I haven't changed my view, or the world can change and do what it is. But um, listen, I know what the Bible said, and what it's always going to say, it's not going to change. And so that's what it is. You just need to kind of tell all those people what they need to talk about, right? You talk about hell last week, and they don't like it. That's just what they're going to have to deal with. But listen, I know what so You tell them, Adam. You tell them. Who is them? Them sinners? Because I got news for you. Them is us. There is no them. There are only people like you and me who wrestle with sin, period. End of story. The flavor of sin might change. The shade of sin might change. But we are all sinners in need of grace. No one gets to be a part of this church or any church of Jesus Christ because we are more holy than somebody else. We all come in through the sinner's door. We all come in through the grace of Jesus Christ. And so there's no room to have bare conviction without compassion. That's not how Jesus treats people. He doesn't deal simply in terms of topics or issues. He deals in terms of people, people who he made in his image to be in relationship with him. And so this isn't academic for him either. He's thinking about his children whom he loves. And if that is how Jesus reaches out to people, this is how we must reach out to him. We would reach out to people too. There is no place for conviction without compassion. But the second error is always also one we have to be alive to. And it is this, to have compassion without conviction. To have compassion without conviction. Because some people say, well, listen, Adam, if I got to err, I'm going to err on the side of love. All right, look, listen, God's going to figure it out. God loves people. I love people. I don't want to judge anybody. I don't want to get into this. I don't want to deal with it. It seems very messy. And so look, if I got to err in a certain way, I'll just err on the love side. I just love everybody. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to get into it. You pray, figure it out on your own, but I'm just going to sit here. I'll give you all the love in the world, but I just can't hold the conviction of scripture. Adam, don't you remember that story in John chapter eight, where there's a woman caught in the act of adultery. And they bring him before Jesus and say, Jesus, the law says that we're supposed to stone this woman. What should we do? 
Jesus writes in the ground until finally he says, hey, you who are without sin, you be the first one to throw that stone. And all of them begin to drift away until no one's left. He finally says to the woman, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, they've all left. And Jesus says, well, neither do I condemn you. People say, Adam, that's what I want to be. That's, that, that's what I want to emulate. I, just want, I don't want to condemn people. I don't want to judge people. I just want to love people. So, so why can't I just do that? Listen, that is exactly how we should lead. We always lead with compassion. We, also, we always lead by loving people in the name of Jesus Christ. But do not forget the last verse of that story where Jesus says to the woman, now go and leave your life of sin. He says the quiet part out loud. He says it. This is just like in the woman of the well, where he, he breaks all the barriers to go after this woman. He says, man, I'm coming for you, man. I, I know you're trying to avoid everybody, but I'm coming to you. I love you. I want you to know me. And as soon as she says, yes, give me living water, he's then going to talk about, well, we're going to have to talk about the guy you're sleeping with. He's not your husband. He says it out loud. We lead with compassion, but we cannot jettison conviction. You got to say both. And so when it comes to issues like this, we cannot simply pick one or the other. Now, look, everybody in the room, we kind of lean in one of those directions. Hopefully you got a little bit of both, but most of us, we lean either towards conviction or compassion. So whichever way you lean, I want you to try to lean towards the middle today. If you lean towards conviction, don't leave that. We need it. I just need you to get a little bit more compassion into the mix. And if you lean towards compassion, don't leave that. We need all of that. But I need you to add a little bit more conviction into the mix because we're always going to need both. But here's the thing. The middle is messy. It's nuanced. It requires conversations. It requires this time. It's just messier there. But this is the way of Jesus Christ. And this is the path that he asks us to walk on. So with that in mind, let's begin to jump in. Uh, you should find yourself in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Look, if this is hard for us, we are not the first people to wrestle with this. We're not the first people to live in a sexually licentious culture trying to figure out how do we relate to this. So look at what Paul says to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9, he says this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, or the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I won't be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Go back to the first slide, if you will. Uh, Listen, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church. Uh, Corinth is a Roman city. And this church is made up of mainly new converts who are Gentiles, not Jews. So they didn't grow up with Jewish sensibilities. They grew up with Roman sensibilities. Corinth uh, was a very metropolitan, cosmopolitan city, uh, lived at the the center of some trade routes. And so you got a very multicultural, very diverse set of people rolling through this Roman city. But many of these people have now come to faith in Christ and say, Adam, we love the Lord. We we, we follow the Lord. Uh, But they're having a hard time letting go of some of their sexual sensibilities from before they were saved. And Paul's simply going to call them right out. Here's some of the things that they're dealing with. 
uh, there's a guy in the church who's sleeping with his stepmom. And this is not a one-off. It's like a full-on consensual relationship, and they just want the church to be cool with it. They're like, hey, this is what we're doing, and you got to be okay with it. Why? Because all things are permissible for me. There are other men in the church who are married, but they're also sleeping with temple prostitutes in the middle of the week. Because that's cool, right? I can worship on Sunday, be married, and then I can go down to the corner and just sleep with a prostitute and come back and all's good, right? That's what I was doing before I got saved. I mean, my body doesn't matter. So that's cool, right? Because everything's permissible for me. Paul is quoting their slogans to say, no, it's not. Instead, he calls this sexually immoral. You see that right there at the top. That word in the Greek is porneia. It's where we get the word pornography. And that word, it shows up 93 different times in the Bible. 93. This is not a one-off. 93 times from the beginning to the end. And he says, listen, porneia is any type of sexual activity outside of God's design. That design is a man and a woman in a heterosexual married context. Period. End of story. This is how God created sex to be experienced and enjoyed. And he said, within that context, it is good as a gift. But when you take this outside of that context, it becomes porneia in all of its forms. Put that back in there for just a second. But notice here, he's talking to people who are having uh, sexual morality in the heterosexual sense. But he also adds men who practice homosexuality. There's actually two Greek words behind this, indicating that both the passive and the active partners in a homosexual act. And so he's speaking very clearly here and including homosexuality within this category of sexual immorality. Now, why would he do that? Why would he say that this is not included, even if it's consensual, even if it's a a committed relationship? Why would that be the case? Well, let's look back through scripture and see what the Bible has to say to us on this. First off, let's go to Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. If you were with us a few weeks ago, we talked about creation. That we are not cosmic accidents. We are not simply the products of evolution. God created us on purpose. We don't have to agree on how he did that, but we agree that God made us on purpose. We are made in his image for a relationship with him. But look at his design. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves along the earth. So here's God's design from the beginning. He creates man and woman. Together, we reflect the image of God. He makes these genders complementary on purpose. Why? Because when you bring man and woman together, guess what? That produces children which now allows you to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. This cannot happen in a homosexual context, but it does happen in a heterosexual context. Now, all of this is before chapter three. There's no sin here. This is what God has intended from the beginning. Go to the next one. This is Genesis chapter two, verses 24 and 25. God has given Eve to Adam and together he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Look, there's this misunderstanding in the Christian church that sex is something we ought to be ashamed of. It's not. It's not something God regrets. He says, no, I made it on purpose. It is a good gift given to my people. And when this exists between one man and one woman in one marriage, a heterosexual marriage, okay, this is the context 
in which you can be fruitful and multiply, you can be naked and not ashamed, where you will flourish as humans. Go back to that verse for just a second, too. Uh, please notice this, because this is also important. Uh, uh, the next one. Go to the next one. Um, look what he says. Look at all the gendered language here. It says, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's very specific. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say this. He doesn't say, so a person will leave his parents and find a partner, and then they will be one person. He doesn't say it that way. Could have. He's aware. But he doesn't. He said, no, instead, a man is going to leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. You see, this gendered nature of who we are is important. He has created sex and sexuality within this context. This is what he designed us for. But then we hit chapter 3 and everything goes off the rails. In chapter 3, sin enters the picture. And from that point on, it just goes from bad to worse. First two brothers, one kills the other one. Strife, murder, robbery, all these different things, they begin to emerge on the scene. People invent new ways of doing evil. It just gets worse and worse and worse as you go on through the pages of Genesis. Right there at the very beginning, way back at the beginning, this is, we get the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And look, the people of Sodom were very wicked. There were lots of reasons why that would be the case. But one of those things that cannot be denied was the fact that they were practicing homosexual acts. That's confirmed in Jude, it's confirmed in the New Testament, is where actually we get the word term sodomy. And so even back here in Genesis, homosexual activity, people were aware of it and understood it. And the Lord says, this is not according to my design. Fast forward a little more. The Lord builds his people. Abraham becomes a nation. The nation is taken into the promised land and God gives them the law. He says, here's how you are to live with me. Here's how you are to respond. I'm going to be, here's how you are to live as my people. Look what it says in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 31 or verse 13. It says, if a man lies with a male uh, as a, with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. Now look, it's a hard verse. But look what he's saying there. He's saying he's recognizing homosexual activity and he calls it an abomination. That might be a hard term for you. Just please understand, this is kind of how God feels about all sin. But he's clearly calling it sin. Now, some people are going, Adam, you can't quote Leviticus. Come on, dude, it's Leviticus. A, no one reads Leviticus. B, dude, there's weird stuff in Leviticus. There's all kinds of crazy laws in Leviticus. We don't do all the stuff in Leviticus anymore. They got like the sacrifices and all the stuff. And so you can show me some other verses, but you can't show me Leviticus. Like, like we don't do that, right? Well, yes and no. In one sense, yes, we don't have, we're not abiding by the sacrificial law anymore. All of the law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And there are many things we don't have to abide by. Jesus gives us freedom in many areas, but many he doesn't. He actually brings them right along. And, and go back here. If you look at this verse in context, it's in the middle of a paragraph. And in this paragraph, uh, it marks out four different things. It marks out homosexuality in addition to adultery, incest, and bestiality. Now, those other three, we would still say, are wrong and we should not do. So the question isn't, why are we talking about a verse in Leviticus? The question is, how could you pick out one of those and say, God has changed his mind on this, but we still haven't changed our mind about the other three? On what basis would we actually make that change? And so God is being consistent in what he says. But you say, yeah, but Adam, look, that's surely not Jesus, right? I mean, because Jesus changes a lot of things. I mean, Jesus reinterprets some things and he, he brings some things on. He's just so much comp- more compassionate. Surely Jesus wasn't really on board with ideas like that. Well, let's check that and see. This is Matthew now. Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. 
Some people have come to him and they're trying to defend a no-fault divorce. And so Jesus talks to them about marriage and listen to what he says. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Right, so what you see here, if that sounds familiar, it should be, Jesus is affirming the creation account. He is affirming God's design in creation. And he should know because he was there. He made everything. All things were made through him. And so he says, look, I was there. And so God did design things in a particular way. He makes them male and female. He puts them together. This is why marriage is so sacred and so important to him. But he is affirming what we read in the Old Testament. But still some people today will say, yeah, but Adam, he wasn't aware of committed homosexual relationships. If he had been aware of committed lifelong homosexual relationships, he would say something differently about that because he just wasn't aware of such things during his time. And that's just not historically accurate. Because when you get back into the ancient, ancient, uh, really the Spartans and then the Greeks and then the Romans after them, Homosexuality was understood and in many ways approved even back then. It was a very different sexual ethic back in uh, ancient times. If you were a Spartan, that was even before the Greeks and the Romans, if you were a Spartan, teenagers were routinely uh, used sexually by older members of the tribe. It was one of the ways that they actually uh, kind of brought them up, toughened them up. Uh, to be a part. So before you could go and participate in a battle like the 300, uh, you had all kinds of things to endure as a teenager. And that's just kind of the way things were if you were in Sparta. In both Greece and Rome, pederasty was not simply tolerated, it was assumed. That's when an older man is going to have a sexual relationship with a younger teenager or boy, typically one of his students. And people just assumed that was just kind of normal. That was just kind of part and parcel of what was going on in that day and time. There were rumors about both Julius Caesar and Mark Antony about homosexual activity uh, in their past uh, that really marked them in the future. Both of these guys actually also commit adultery. Uh, Interestingly, they have different wives, but committed adultery with the same woman, Cleopatra. Things were weird back in Rome. They really were. Look, a lot of really interesting things going on back then. Very different kind of sexual ethic. But this is very much understood during the time of Jesus and certainly during the time of Paul, which makes this passage in Romans very interesting. This is Romans chapter one. Paul is talking to, or talking to the Romans about us, about fallen humanity, about all of us who sin. And listen to what it says. It says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now look, that's a hard one. If you've got friends and family members who experience same-sex attraction, that's a really hard passage to read. You say, Adam, why is is he picking on homosexuality here? Well, he's actually not. If you read the next few verses, he's going to go on a litany of other different sins that we all deal with. Sins like strife and murder and and, and slander and and malice and, and envy and more. 
Things that we all deal with in this room. You say, well, Adam, then why then is he focusing so much on homosexuality in this passage? Well, let me be very clear here. It is not because homosexuality is somehow a worse sin than all these other sins. It's not. It's not like it exists in its own category. The reason why he's pointing it out here is because it's an object lesson. In homosexuality, we're taking God's design and we're standing it on on its head. We're doing the opposite of what God intended. And that's really all forms of sin. We take what God intended and we twist it. We use it differently than it was intended. And this is what makes it sin. This is what brings destruction upon us. And so homosexuality is not worse than any other sin, but we certainly can't twist this around to say, yeah, but God didn't mean that. And surely there's places where it's good as if there were other good forms of murder or strife or envy or malice or gossip or slander. There's none. But, but there's also not an acceptable view of this either. And so you see all throughout scripture, you see exactly what he is doing here of talking about all these things. And obviously we got our first Corinthians passage right here in front of you where he also mentions homosexual behavior. It says these people who practice this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, this is not the only category. He includes, it includes swindlers and, dr- swindlers and drunkards and, and many other people as well. But he clearly condemns this along with other sins and says this is not God's design. And so the clear witness of scripture and God's idea about this from the beginning all the way to the end is that this is not God's design for sexuality and therefore we cannot affirm, we cannot condone this. That's hard, isn't it? When you've got friends who wrestle with same-sex attraction, when you have people you care about who wrestle with same-sex attraction, you might be sitting there going, Adam, I I don't know what to do. I mean, I love the Lord, but I love this person. And Adam, how how can I tell this person that that they shouldn't act on those feelings? How could I tell these people that they shouldn't have this as as part of their life? How can I tell them that they they want to walk with Jesus, that that Jesus is not okay with how they feel about these things sexually? How, How can I possibly tell somebody something like that? That just seems too much. It seems like a bridge too far. It seems like too much of a sacrifice for these folks to make. I just don't know if I could say that to people. But please understand, this is a sacrifice that the Lord asks all of us to make. When we come to salvation in Christ, we don't give him a little bit of us. We have to surrender everything. Everything. We don't get to hold anything back. Look, if you find it easy to surrender everything in your life to the Lord, I don't know if we've really wrestled with what full surrender really looks like. Because giving up your whole life is hard. Surrendering to the Lord and his lordship in our life is hard. He's not simply asking this of of us who have same-sex attraction. He's asking this of anybody who would come to the Lord. And so he's asking this of everybody. But look, listen, I'm probably not the person to help you deal with this. I do not personally struggle with same-sex attraction. Many of you do not as well. You might feel very awkward or uncomfortable trying to talk about these issues with somebody who does. But praise be to the Lord that over the past decade, he's actually raised up other brothers and sisters who do experience same-sex attraction, who are faithful believers, who can speak into this and help other people understand this. People like Sam Albury. Sam Albury is a pastor, originally a pastor in Europe. I actually got to meet Sam a few years ago. 
uh, was uh, pastoring over there. He now lives in Nashville, I think, and is a speaker. Uh, travels around encouraging different people, part of the Gospel Coalition. Uh, he's written a book called Is God Anti-Gay? It's one of the best books you can possibly read on this. I keep copies in my office to hand out. It's a tiny little book. You can read it in one sitting. I would recommend every single one of you to go grab a copy of this book and read it. Because he's going to walk through these passages and more. And as somebody who does wrestle with same-sex attraction, he's going to walk through, here's how I experience this. Here's how I, I walk with this in my daily life. Rebecca McLaughlin is in a similar vein. She actually wrote the Secular Creed, one of our uh, companion books to the series. Also grew up, uh, also went to school at Oxford, grew up there, lives now here in America, uh, but has written uh, the Secular Creed as well as Confronting Christianity, both books that are setting up, walking through apologetics of saying, hey, I came to faith in Christ and Jesus is worth it. She's actually now married now to a man, has multiple children, and yet still experiences same-sex attraction but finds fulfillment in her life by following after the Lord. We can let her speak to this. There's Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria Butterfield was, the, uh, was a tenured professor of queer, th- queer theory at Syracuse University, but begins a friendship with a pastor who lived nearby, and over the course of this friendship comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Leaves behind not only the person she was dating in a, a homosexual relationship, Believes her position uh, as a tenured professor and is now an accomplished author and writer and speaker in her own right, married as well uh, to a pastor now and continues to help people follow after Jesus Christ. There's Jackie Hill Perry. Jackie Hill Perry is an African-American woman, uh, an author, a poet, a hip-hop artist, uh, as well as a Bible teacher. Uh, she wrote a book called Gay Girl, Good God where she talks about her own experience in a homosexual relationships and how the Lord confronts her with his reality, but also with his grace and with his love for her, comes to faith in Christ and now walks faithfully with the Lord. And there's Beckett Cook. Beckett Cook uh, grew up in Texas, but moved out to L.A. to become a production designer. Uh, during his time there, he has worked with most of the actors and actresses that you and I would recognize Uh, But living out a full gay lifestyle and everything that goes along with it in California and Hollywood. And he finds it empty until he meets some people who are believers who invite him to a church service where he hears the gospel of Jesus Christ is radically saved. And now has actually gone on to seminary. He has a podcast of his own. You can watch him on YouTube. You can listen to him online where he interviews different people talking about his experience as well. Many of these folks are still experiencing feelings of same-sex attraction. And yet they are followers of Jesus Christ and say, Jesus is better. Jesus is worth it because my sexuality is not my identity. It's a part of who I am. It is not the totality of who I am, but I was made in the image of God to be in a relationship with him. And Jesus Christ gave his life for me and I have now found life in him. I would encourage you to read, listen, experience what these brothers and sisters of ours have to say so that we too can grow in our understanding and how to share with our friends and family members. And look, if you're here today going, Adam, this is all very academic and very interesting to me, but good news, uh, I don't wrestle with that kind of thing. Uh, And so this doesn't really affect me. So I'll be sure to keep this when I'm talking to other people, but this doesn't affect me. Actually, this affects all of us in this room. Because remember, Paul's not simply talking about porneia. He doesn't simply refer to homosexual sexual morality. He's talking mainly about heterosexual sexual immorality, which quite honestly has always been a problem in the church and in this church as well. I probably experienced that with you guys more than anything else. 
When people say, Adam, listen, I, I, you know, I've got these feelings, but I don't want to follow the Christian sexual ethic. But here's what God says, because sex is designed for a man and a woman in a committed marriage relationship, period. End of story. Students, you need to hear this. This has always been true. It's always going to be true. But God says, listen, you have to wait until marriage for sex. It's something that is good. It is a gift, but you cannot engage in this before marriage. That includes pornography. Just because we're looking at things and saying, well, I'm not I'm with a, a real person. This does not change things. You're perverting the idea of what God made sex to be. And he invites us to be a part of it. But please do not think this is a student. This is an issue just for our students. If you are divorced in the room, this does not mean that ever since you've basically, you've already kind of been through this. You just get now a buy and you can just kind of do whatever you want. You cannot. If you were divorced, but you were not married, there's no place for sex for you until I am in a committed, married, heterosexual relationship again. It is not okay for you. Why? Because this is what God has designed for us. This is why we do not allow cohabitation. You say, well, I'm going to get married, so it's cool, right? No, because God says, listen, this is for a man and a woman in a committed, married relationship. This is how I designed it. This is how, what brings human flourishing to you. And when you take this out of its proper context and you try to do something different with it, it does not lead to your flourishing. It leads to your destruction. So let's please not look down on anybody else because every single one of us is going to struggle in one sexual area or another. God has made us as sexual beings. It is good, but we are all dealing with a fallen flesh. And while our temptations might be different, every one of us is going to have to wrestle with this and say, am I going to follow after the ways of the Lord or not? But very quickly, how do we respond? How should we respond to a fallen world? When you and I actually say these things out loud, the world has an idea of its own. It is not going to agree with a Christian worldview. How then do we respond to a world that believes very differently when it comes to this topic? And there's two ways we need to respond. And the first is this. We must always respond with compassion. We must always respond with compassion. This is the first and the highest thing we must do. We don't lead with our conviction. We lead with our compassion in our conversations with other people and how we interact with others, regardless of how they treat us, regardless of what they say to us, we respond with compassion. We begin to recognize that even though you may not wrestle with same-sex attraction, for those that do, this is frustrating. It's confusing. They might even feel ashamed of that in the way that many of us feel ashamed about different sins in our lives. What a terrible tragedy it would be if somebody in our congregation experienced the same-sex attraction and didn't feel they could talk to anybody in this church for fear of how it would be received. We ought, ought all to be in a place where we recognize that we are all wrestling with sin. All of us wrestle with sin. All of us are dealing with things. Look, there's heterosexual folks in this room who say, Adam, I'm having trouble staying faithful in my marriage. I'm not dealing with same-sex attraction. I'm dealing with opposite-sex attraction. And yet, I'm going to choose to be faithful in my marriage. There's people who are attracted to different substances. They're attracted to their own pride that I can't possibly be wrong about anything else. That's a self-attraction. We all have different sins in our lives. Same-sex attraction is no different. And so look, if you wrestle with same-sex attraction, if you're here today, if you're hearing the sound of my voice on a podcast, please understand anybody who wrestles with same-sex attraction is more than welcome at this church. Always and everywhere. 
Look, I cannot and will not affirm a homosexual lifestyle, but I can and will affirm you. Because that's what Jesus does. Jesus loves us. Though we're sinners, though we do the wrong things, Jesus comes after us. We only call sin what it is, but we always lead with compassion. And look, if that is problematic for you, so I don't know how I feel about that. Oh, yes, a slippery slope. You can't say that kind of thing. Please go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. Look what he says. Neither the thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. The church is made up of sinners saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And that means sinners of all stripes. That means sinners of every variety. That's me. That's you. That's all of us. And though our brand of sin might be different, Jesus opens up that door. This is us. So we show compassion when people wrestle with whatever they are wrestling with. P.S. That must extend to people who do not believe like us. Because look, when you share this and say, no, I actually do believe in a Christian sexual ethic. I believe that that homosexuality is wrong for the believer in Jesus Christ. The world is going to come at you. They're going to call you names. They're going to yell at us. They're not going to agree with us. And we need to show the same compassion to them as well. It means we don't fight fire with fire. It means we don't throw the epithets right back at them. It means that with the same grace that we have been given, we give that grace to others. It is our Savior who, while he is being crucified for sins he did not commit, says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. And if that is the grace that God gives, then we should give that same grace as well. So we always respond with compassion. But secondly, we must also respond with conviction. We can't stop at compassion. We must also respond with conviction. We have to say the truth. Why? Because what the Bible says is this. Sin leads to death always. There are no exceptions. All sin is corrosive. It is destructive. It leads to death. We are doing people no favors if we do not tell them that they are in danger. We do people no favors if we will not speak the truth That this is not according to God's design and it's not going to lead to your flourishing. It will lead to your destruction. It's going to keep you from the very relationship that you were made for from the beginning. We're going to actually have to say that out loud. And that's hard. You see, now this is where the world's going to come at us. This is where the words come in like bigot and homophobe. Where they're going to say, Adam, I don't believe you can do that. Adam, you can't do that. If you love me, then you have to accept me for who I am. If you love me like you say you do, well, then you must accept who I am because it's core to my identity. It is impossible for you to actually love me and not love my identity, to not love what I do, and I would disagree. It is absolutely possible to love someone and not to approve of parts of their lifestyle. If you want to see this in action, ask any parent who's got a wayward child, And they will tell you it's absolutely possible to love someone and not approve of what's going on in their life. If you have a wayward child, you love your child. You would give anything for your child. You you would literally sacrifice anything for this child. But if your child is engaged in an activity that is destroying them, if they're around people who are leading them astray, if they're involved with a substance or something that is literally just, just tearing their life apart, you love this child, but you will never approve of those very things that are destroying them. It is absolutely possible to love someone deeply and not approve of part of their life. 
absolutely possible. This is the line we have to walk. Look, we're all going to get a lot of pressure to temper our position. I get pressure as a pastor to say, Adam, you got to change your views. Church is in decline. Two generations coming up underneath it. They're not going to listen. Dude, if you actually hold on to this ethic, nobody's going to listen. Nobody's going to be a part of the church anymore. You have a bunch of old people that will die and the church will be gone. You've got to change your views. You have to modernize. If you actually want to survive in a progressing area, you must change. Which, P.S., this has been said for like 200 years, and it's never actually worked. Interesting. I saw uh, an article this week about the PCUSA. This is the Presbyterian Church in the USA. That's not to be uh, confused with the PCA. That's Briarwood uh, and their denomination. The PCUSA is the largest Presbyterian denomination in America. In 2012, they had 1.7 million members on their roll. Okay, now this is also one of the most liberal denominations in America. They have been the most affirming, most open on LGBTQ issues than almost any other denomination. In fact, last month, they put genderqueer as part of one of their, their, their denominations, like a, like, a, like, a, like a marker for membership. Uh, you can say, I identify as this. They are completely and totally open. Over the past 12 years, their membership has dropped by 35%. In the same decade where everybody's position changed, where people became more affirming than ever, ever been, where the whole culture is affirming. If people say, Adam, if you would just be more open, if you would just change your theology, if you just get along with the times, more people would come in. Then why aren't they the fastest growing denomination in America? And yet they've lost a third in one decade. That is staggering. Because when you jettison the core of Christianity to match everybody else's opinion, you're not left with much at the end. And look, here's the bigger problem for me as a pastor. Look, when people come to see me, a lot of people come to see me in crisis. Some of you come to see me in crisis. And my goal is hopefully to help you as much as I can. I want to point you towards Jesus Christ so you can find life in him. So let's imagine something. Let's imagine we change our views. Now homosexual marriage is okay. And we have a homosexual couple who joins the church. And they come in and they're here for a while. And then that couple, like any marriage couple, is going to find themselves in a, a crisis. They find themselves having problems. And they come in to see me. They say, Adam, we got, we got a problem. Can you, can you help us? What am I supposed to help them with? What can I give to them? Do I point them to God? Well, God's still figuring it out. He's changed his mind over the course of history. So who knows where he's going to land? And so I can tell you something, but I can't guarantee it's going to be the same thing because he, he did say this, but now he says this and he might say that. So I really can't point you towards the Lord. Can I point you to scripture? Well, we pick and choose scripture now. I like this one, but I don't like that one. So what happens if this person in the couple likes this passage and this person likes that passage, but I don't agree with the other passage. Well, then we can't actually agree. So scripture can't actually help me. Do I point them towards morality? Well, morality is now decided by public opinion. And so if public opinion changes. Well, that's what morality, we get that. So I got to wait until the election and then I'll find out what public opinion says. And then I can actually tell you where you're actually supposed to go. And then maybe that'll help you a little bit. Or I just point them back towards their feelings, which is where we all started. Love is love. But what happens when the feelings aren't there anymore? And what happens when the feelings are conflicting? What happens when I don't think or feel the way I used to think and feel? There's actually nothing underpinning it after all. I got nothing to help people with. Here's the only thing I have and it's the only thing I need. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Listen, you and I are not saved because we're good people. We're not saved because we grew up in the South. We're not saved because we're a part of a particular church. We're not saved because we don't do certain things. You and I are saved because we were made in the image of God, but we all messed it up. We're all sinners and we all deserve death and hell. But there's a God who made us, who loved us so much that he actually went to the cross because my sins were real. He paid a real death. And when he rose again, he loves me so much. He came after me and just gave me his righteousness and that my salvation is not found in, in what I do or where I've been. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. My God is good. My God is loving. My God is saving and he teaches me how to live. And so look, I can't follow after the world and whatever it's going to do, the only hope humanity has is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I cannot bow out of that. Look, I would love it if I could just make this easy for everybody. I really would. You don't know how hard it has been to try to sit here and parse through these things. And look, I want to meet every single person where they are. We feel that same tension. We would love to be able to just sidestep this issue. But don't you see, if we believe in the gospel, we've got no other hope. So it's time to put our money where our mouth is and say we are going to lead with compassion. We will lead with grace. And we will point people to the only one who can truly save us. It is the person of Jesus Christ. So no matter what you wrestle with or where you are, the hope for you is that Jesus made you, he loved you, and you can have life in him. So just want to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. Just a second, we're going to close. And look. This is a hard topic. It's a hard situation to deal with because this is personal for so many of us. We're not thinking about a, an issue today. Many of us are thinking about people we deeply, deeply love who are struggling, who are hurting. Some of whom might have even been hurt by folks in the church. And look, today, it might be a moment where we simply need to to pray. Maybe we need to repent of some attitudes if we've ever looked down on anybody for the sins that they deal with, just because it's not a sin that you deal with. Maybe today's the day we begin to lift up friends, neighbors, coworkers, relatives, and say, Father, I pray that they would find life in you today, true life in you today. Maybe today's the day we just ask the Lord to help us understand this. Maybe this is just bringing up an issue. So Adam, I, I, I got to wrestle with this in a way I didn't know I needed to, to wrestle. I need to think this through in a way I haven't thought it through before. Let's continue that conversation. But let's today put our hope not in a person or a culture or an issue or a feeling. Let us find our salvation in the person of Jesus Christ who loves you, who seeks you, and made you for a relationship with himself. And so, Father, thank you for that. God, you know our messiness more than we do. God, you know what we wrestle with and how we can't change it. We just need help with that. So, Father, I want to pray for all of us, for those who wrestle with some form of same-sex attraction, for those of us who have family members and friends and neighbors who do. 
Lord, would you show us how to lead with compassion like you do? How to speak with proper conviction like you do? And Lord, would you be the one to put words in our mouth and actions in our hearts that we might respond as you do to a world that is broken like us and desperately in need of you? So Father, thank you for your help. Thank you for what you will continue to do in the days and years to come in helping us walk through this issue. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray.